Again, our study of Zechariah that will take us into June, maybe through June. Uh, Zechariah is a, it's a decently uh, long Old Testament minor prophet, but it, it, uh, it's something I think we can cover in those, those weeks. The, the theme of the book, as I'm trying to lay it out here in the sermon series, is longing for renewal longing for renewal. It's the people of God in a difficult place and time who are looking around them and wondering where is the justice of God? Where is the mercy of God? Where is the hope uh, that they desperately need through the Lord? And the Lord graciously meets with them through the words given to the prophet Zechariah to point them to hope towards renewal. And this morning, uh, we're in our third study here of the, of the text. We're in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. It's a, we've, we, we talked about, uh, again, his call initially was to the people to just turn to him. The Lord's call to, to them, turn to me. Uh, it was a call of repentance. And repentance meaning not just come back to Jerusalem, not just come back to the temple and religious life, but, but come to me. Come to me in humility and, and confession. Your, declare your dependence upon me. Look to me as your hope and your life. And that's what they've done. And so he's giving them these oracles. There's these visions uh, that God gives to Zechariah. They're called the night visions. And they run from here through chapter 6. He began last week with the first vision, which was a, a, a beautiful picture uh, of, of hope for them. You remember there is the, the little myrtle tree patch and down, growing down in the, in the valley in the low place and the horses that were there in the, in the midst of that patch with the riders, uh, the angels of God and the angel of the Lord himself as the lead rider. And the whole point of that passage was, this is you, this is you the people of God. You are this little evergreen patch growing in the desert. You're surrounded by all this chaos and all this danger and all this oppression and yet I am with you. My, my angel armies are with you, led by the angel of the Lord, who we saw to be Jesus himself. God is with his people, and he promises them that he's jealous for them, that he would put down the oppressors, the enemies of God, and choose them again, establish uh, Jerusalem again, and, and make this a place where the blessings of God would flow. They've just gotten this, this great picture of of hope that arrives in Christ. And now we're moving into the second vision, the second oracle here, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. But what we'll see there is that it sort of begins to address the maybe the nagging question. If if you're if you're an oppressed people, you've been oppressed for a long time and you get this this vision of hope, uh, you might be thinking, well that's that's then, that's coming, but what about now? What about the injustices that we face now? And God, how will you address it? You said you'll address it, but how will you address it? And that's what this vision is about. And it's very relevant to us because it has to do with longing for a renewed justice. That's the title of the message this morning. Justice, is that a word we've heard so much lately, justice. 
and of course the opposite of justice, injustice. Is there a more pressing issue in our country right now, in our world right now, than the, the cry for justice, the cry out against injustice? I don't have to bring up probably too many examples. They're probably already swimming through your, your brains. This, 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 this year alone that we've just you know, kind of walked through, last spring until now. Black Lives Matter movements, criminal justice and police reform, uh, protests and conversations, concerns about voting rights and, 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 and violence against certain ethnic groups, wealth gaps, uh, minimum wage discussions, I mean, all of these different things where there's these calls out from people for justice and cries against injustices. Even in the church, cries for justice and crying out against injustices. There's just been, it seems like, an explosion of these things lately. Is that what's happening? Is it, is, it, is it an explosion? Well, kind of. I mean, certainly in our experience, yes, but the truth of the matter is there's always oppressed peoples. Always. There's always injustices and always cries out for justice. I think it's a fair statement to say that human history is made up of just the back and forth of a oppressors and victims. I know that sounds a little Marxist. I'm not a Marxist. I wouldn't normally quote Karl Marx in, in a message, but I think he was kind of right on that, that idea, at least. There's just this constant play back and forth of, of oppression, oppressors and victims. That's the story of human history, winners and losers, power and, and the weak. There's a hope always for justice. That's why we continually cry out for it. And the hope is that when it finally comes, what it will look like is that the victims of oppression will someday become victors and the unjust will someday get what's due to them, the due punishment that's due them. Why is there oppression? Why is there injustice? Well, the, the message of Scripture is that oppression and injustice exist because of human nature. It's our sin nature. We call it a sin nature. That's a biblical worldview. Others may just simply call it a survival instinct, right? You gotta, you've got to look out for number one. You've got to take care of yourself and in doing that, throughout the course of human history, we take care of ourselves so very often by trying to put other people down, right? We climb, uh, we climb up on them to get ahead. But it's not just merely a survival instinct, it's sinful. And it's interesting that just as it's human nature to commit injustices against others, and by the way, it, it is, that's the heart of our sin nature. We're all guilty of that. It's also our nature somehow to desire 
that there's justice in the world, right? What's going on with that? Well, I think, again, it just sort of points to the reality of a biblical worldview. We're all guilty of, of sin, of oppression, of treating others badly. It, it points to the reality of sin. But the fact that it bothers us that that's, that's the case, especially when it's other people who are oppressing us, that's evidence that we were made for something better. That's evidence of the image of God in us. We want justice in our heart of hearts, even though we so readily commit injustice. So where will it come from, justice? Where will it come from? How will it overthrow the oppressors of the world and establish justice for everybody, once and for all? I'm sure that's a question that looms large in all of our minds right now, especially in seasons like the one we're living in. It's also a question that loomed large in the minds of the citizens of Jerusalem. Again, in 519 BC, where they find themselves at, returning back from captivity, 70 years of captivity under the hands of, of, of an oppressor, somewhat free to go home and rebuild, but still under the ultimate authority of that same oppressive regime. And they're wondering, when is justice going to come? The passage that we have, the second vision of Zechariah, it's really short and it's really simple. And actually, if, if, if we were engaged with Esteban as he led us in prayer just a few minutes ago, I think he pretty much actually preached my sermon for me, um, which is great. And it's, it just gives us an opportunity to look again and, and to answer this question, where, where does justice come from and how does God bring it about in the world? That's what this little vision is about, and it's a surprising vision. Look down at the text, Zechariah 1.18. He says, And I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, pointing to the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. That's the second vision. It's, very, it's real short and it's real simple. What's, what's going on with this one? Well, remember, we looked at the first vision last week, and I, I just described it a, a, a minute or so ago, of this picture of God's people, this evergreen people where God is saying, I'm, I'm with you in the midst of this chaos, right? I'm going to, again, choose you. I'm going I'm to let my blessings flow again from Jerusalem. But in the middle of that vision, he says that he's angry. God is angry with these nations that have oppressed them. He's used them. He's God is sovereign and God sent them into exile as God's judgment on his people for their rebellion against him. He used these nations as an instrument of his holy judgment against his people. But he also declares, but they took it 
too far. They were oppressive to you out of their own sinfulness, far and above anything that I would have have, have ordained from them. And I'm angry with them. I, I will judge the oppressor. And that's what this second vision flows from. This judgment of the nations who have oppressed the people of God. And Zechariah lifts his eyes and he sees four horns, he says. That probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us, right? Four horns. What, what is this symbolism all about? And, and if you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that, that this picture of horns tends to come up quite a bit. It doesn't mean a whole lot to us primarily as 21st century city dwellers because we're not around animals very often, that have, especially animals that have horns. So think of like a bull or something like that, right? Or a ram, something, some, some kind of fierce and, 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 and strong uh, animal that uses their horns as the instrument of their strength, right? That's sort of their attack mechanism. They, they use their horns to pierce or to put down or to, to cast off, right? Their horns are seen in the Old Testament as a symbol of that strength, of that power, and so Zechariah sees these, these four horns, these four symbols of a power, a, uh, probably a national power, a royal power, and it's a power that is indicative of this oppressive uh, power that's been holding down the people of God, this power that God has been angry against. What does it represent? Why, why are there four horns and and, and who are the four horns? Well, that's where it gets a little bit uh, trickier, and probably this is helpful in terms of how we, we read prophecy. We're told here that these are the horns that have scattered Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem in verse 19. And scholars have tried to, to, to pin like specific empires on that. I mean, obviously we know that Israel has been under the captivity of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Assyrians over the last... 70 plus years. And so there's, a, there's sort of this obvious assumption, well, that's, it's probably those empires, but that's three, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Who's the fourth horn? So scholars have thought, well, I mean, maybe it's Egypt. I mean, there's been other, other nations, the Edomites, the Philistines, the Phoenicians that have taken advantage of the people of God, that have mocked the people of God. Maybe that's what represented in the fourth horn. And others have, have said, well, maybe we looked at to Daniel chapter 2 and we see that, that there's this statue that represents the powers of the world and the statue has four parts to it. Maybe those four parts are what's being represented by these horns. Or maybe in Daniel 7 where there's four beasts, which again are, 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 are seen as these oppressors and symbols of, of, of evil power in the world. Maybe it's the four beasts. Or Daniel 8, there's four horns there. Maybe it's the same horns. And here's the thing. When we read prophetic stuff like this, and we try really hard to attach specific interpretations to the symbols, we oftentimes run into difficulty because most of the time those, those, uh, those attempts break down somewhere, which is why no scholar has been able to fully understand what the four horns represent. So here's, I think, a better way to interpret prophecy like this. Is, is sort of just understand that there's a point, there's a, there's a big picture. Even if we can't identify exactly what each symbol means, there's, a, there's, a, there's an obvious message or point to the symbolism. And the symbolism here is simply that there are aggressive nations 
that have been oppressing the people of God. And the fact that there's four of them, it might be as simple as just to say that the significance of that is that that four represents sort of this totality, like the four points on a compass. From north, south, east, and west, oppressors have been coming. Or from the four corners of the globe, oppressors will come. In other words, it, it doesn't have to be a specific identifiable entity to know that God's people are regularly oppressed in the world throughout the course of human history. And that's, that's, I think, the idea that's being, that's being pointed to here. There's an image here of, of great oppressors of God's people, such that the people of God, the oppressed people of God here, have their heads bowed down low. They're being uh, pointed down, held down by the power and strength of the horns of the oppressors. And the question is, what can, what can be done about that? How does the weak stand up against the the strength and the power of the oppressor when the power of the oppressor is so powerful and so prevalent? Certainly Israel could identify with that in this moment. What could be done? The answer to the question, according to this vision, is really surprising. Look at verse 20 again. After we just got this picture of these four powerful horns that have scattered the people of God, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? I think if we could, if we could step into that moment and hear the tone in which Zechariah asked that question, it would probably have a very surprised tone to it. What are these coming to do? I see these these powerful pictures of, of, of world empire and oppressiveness. I see the horns. Craftsmen. What are they doing? And the answer comes. Again, the angel points back to the horns. These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Surprising answer. Craftsmen will terrify the horns? What is a craftsman? Well, the craftsman here represents something like a carpenter. Maybe something like a, a blacksmith, maybe like an iron worker or a jeweler. It, it, any of these could be indicated by this word for craftsman. But the, the idea is simply this. It's just a, it's sort of a common person. Not elite, not royal, not powerful, but ordinary. And so this vision must have been somewhat shocking Zechariah is looking at these ordinary blue-collar craftsman-type people against the power of these mighty nations and, and must be thinking, they're going to be terrorized by these guys? And the answer from the angel who's giving him this message from God is, yeah, they will. There's a reversal here of fortunes the, the oppressed people's heads have been bowed down low, but, but through the work of this, 
these simple craftsmen, the mighty nation's heads will be bowed down low. God's justice comes to the world, in other words, in a very surprising way through unassuming, humble craftsmen. And as counterintuitive as that may seem, that's precisely the way that God topples the horns of injustice. This is where we have to remember that there's a link between the first vision and the second vision. Again, remember the first vision, you have this army of horses who are patrolling the earth that are reporting that the earth is at peace, it's at rest. It's not, it's not, it's not that a report of a good kind of peace. It's the kind of report that says because of the, the power right now of the Persian empire, there's relative peace in the world because Persia is just shutting everybody down. There's stability in that sense. Persia is in control, right? And they're announcing judgment on that peace, on the, the, the peace of the, of the arrogant and the renewal of God's people. There's this picture of, of triumph, right? I'm with you. My angel armies are with you. I'm going to again choose Jerusalem. They will, these, these foreign powers will be put down. The second, though, we have this picture of common, humble craftsmen. Seems sort of like an anticlimactic transition. Horses, all right, let's go, bring the horses. And, and God sends in a, a plumber and a carpenter. How do we make sense of that? We've got to remember the nature of the horsemen. The horsemen, the angel of the Lord, is a picture of, of Jesus. And because that's true, these two visions go hand in hand to show us that the day of justice has dawned in Jesus Christ through his humble and unassuming servanthood. That's how God intervenes in an unjust world. Remember the words of Philippians chapter 2. Just listen. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When God intervened in the world to bring about justice, to fulfill the promises of the, all of the Old Testament prophets that foretold a day when the horns would be brought down low, when judgment would come and God's people would be lifted up, he answers that call in the arrival of his son who comes not as an obvious king, but as a baby in a manger who comes not to ascend the, the seats of power in Rome and, and knock down Caesar and, and establish a new government, but to take the form of a servant and humble himself and go to a cross. 
Early in Jesus' ministry, he walked into a synagogue in Nazareth and he picked up the scroll of Isaiah and he read this. This is from Luke 4, and Jessica can put it up on the screen for you. Luke 4, 18 to 21. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. With this as his ministry theme, he surprised many when he didn't establish justice through brute force. Instead, he brought justice through gentleness and sacrifice. Matthew 12, I'll put this on the screen as well. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He won't quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. In other words, gentleness, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. How does God bring about justice in a world of injustice? He does it through the ministry of a humble craftsman. His gentleness and sacrifice for the sake of justice came to a climax, again, not at the seats of power in government, but at a cross. Jesus, the carpenter's son, goes to the cross, and what happens? By all appearances, the horns have won again, right? By all appearances, the horns have held down Jesus and the people of God yet one more time. And yet in the economy of God, Rome, religion, Satan, and every oppressive power in the history of the world is hewn down by that carpenter on a wooden cross of oppression and injustice. And in that moment, there was a grand announcement that the time was up for the perpetrators of injustice. Their days were now numbered because in his death, in his humility, Jesus has ultimately defeated the power of the oppressor forever. And one day, on the last day, all things really will be set right and justice will prevail forevermore because this Jesus who died was resurrected and ascended 
and he's coming back. But it begins with the eradication of the great oppressing horns of sin and death. Not first and foremost with the oppression of the nations or any other unjust system in the world. First and foremost, the eradication of the great oppressing horns of sin and death. What does that mean for the oppressed? There's lots of oppressive power in this world. There's lots of ways in which we can be victimized, some of us far more than others. What does that mean for us? It means firstly this, the oppressed find justice in Christ. In Christ. The, the pathway to justice, the pathway to peace in your life comes first and foremost through the humble carpenter, Jesus. And, and here's why that's so important. Regardless of your state or station in life, regardless of the oppression that you may experience now or in the past or in the future, what is your greatest oppressor? What is your greatest oppressor? The answer to that question is and forever will be sin. And in fact, the most brutal oppressor is your own heart. Remember the, the call here at the beginning of Zechariah. God is saying, look, I am coming to you. I am with you. I will establish you. I will be near to you. I will let my blessings flow. But, but, but it starts with the first call to what? To repent. Come to me. Return to me. And I'll return to you. If we want to experience any measure of justice in this world, we first have to recognize our own need to be liberated from the injustice of our own sinful tendency and heart and rebellion towards God. And allow the humble carpenter to eradicate our great oppressors of sin and death through the ministry of his cross. If we, if we want to believe that there's hope for justice in the world, in any measure, we have to look to Jesus as the only one who can ultimately bring about that justice because only Jesus has the power to hew down the horns of injustice as the carpenter who comes humbly to conquer them. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the only pathway really towards justice in the world runs through the cross? That's the message of Scripture. That's the message that God has for his people. Look first and foremost to Jesus. 
And when we do that, it doesn't do away, again, ultimately, at least not yet, with other injustices. So how do we view those? What does it mean in the meantime for those of us who have the hope that Jesus is the one who will ultimately make all things right and make all things new and he ultimately will come again to set that in order? What does it mean in the meantime for those of us who live with that hope but still live in a world full of injustice? You know, there was a great article in the New York Times this week uh, by Esau McCauley. Esau McCauley is a professor out at Wheaton. Uh, He's a black man. He was writing specifically in response to the conviction of Derek Chauvin up in Minneapolis. Um, You know, the idea that that his article was, he was writing in a car with his son and his son was asking him, you know, more about the trial and what is, what is a guilty verdict mean and just asking general questions like that and as he was focusing on the idea of, of justice and what justice was and, and, and was not yet fully accomplished through a verdict like that, he, he said this, and I thought it was really good. It's, it's applicable to the black experience that he's referencing, but I think it's, it's applicable to, to any of our experience as Christians who are wondering, like, how does justice work itself out? Like, are we just... If Jesus is the, is, the, is the one who brings about justice, does that leave us as a people just sort of waiting until he comes back and not knowing what to do in the meantime or what to cling to in the meantime? And this is what he says. He says, there's a version of black pessimism that says that all that remains is the struggle itself. A shouting into the darkness that our lives matter, but real change is impossible. So hear that, especially if, if, you know, if, you're, if you're black or you're thinking about the black experience. I mean, that's, a, that's an important quote. Uh, I want to take it at face value. But also think about it from just any, any perspective of, of an oppressed person. There's this version of pessimism that says that all that remains is the struggle. That's, that's, we're just, that's where it is. The struggle is real, right? And we just shout into the darkness that our lives matter, but real change is impossible There's also a version of black pietism, he says, that assumes that our only hope is the sweet by and by, in which God swoops in at the end of all things to solve our problems. I'm either living in the the, the pessimism that there's really nothing that can be done, or the pietism that, well, it's going to happen, but but it's going to happen then. What about now? He says, but there's a third way rooted in the idea that a just God governs the universe. And for that reason, none of our efforts are in vain. Resistance, he says, in a seemingly impossible scenario is a deep act of faith. It's a belief that God is not limited by our insufficiency but perhaps might even be glorified using limited human instruments for his purposes. Go back to the Zechariah text. How many craftsmen were there? 
One or, or more than one? It's more than one, right? The ultimate craftsman is our, our leader, our elder brother, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who comes and, and brings about the justice of God through his ultimate act of dying on the cross and, and yes, coming back and setting all things new, but he's not alone. There are multiple craftsmen working together to hew down the powers of the horns. And I believe the New Testament message is that's the church's role. If we believe that Jesus is the, the author and the perfecter of justice, as he is the author and perfecter of faith, and we believe that we are the body of Christ in whom his spirit dwells, then we have a call to live out our lives in the way that Jesus lived out his, in humility, in sacrifice, in, in, in just sort of um, common work which God will use to hew down the power structures of oppression in the world. And I think that's what Esau Macaulay is getting at. Resistance is in a seemingly impossible scenario. It's a deep act of faith. It's a belief that God is not limited by our insufficiency, but perhaps might even be glorified through using limited human instruments for his purposes. Reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Maybe you could say he chose the little the little patch of myrtle trees at the bottom of the ravine to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God works his justice through the gentleness and sacrifice of unassuming craftsmen. Craftsmen and craftswomen. And the Christian life is one of being called to be a craftsman. In line with the example of, again, our elder brother Jesus as a means of proclaiming his arrival and the arrival of his justice. Our gospel is one of justification and justice. To proclaim his work to save us from our sin and to renew and redeem the world through the power of that gospel. To work as craftsmen is to bring the message of justification with works of justice. Not just protests, not just social media proclamations. Those are helpful, right? There's a place and a purpose for that. But there's also a great tendency there to just be either A, very ineffective, or B, very self-righteous, right? No, he's called us to enter in as craftsmen from the inside who work with the hammers 
of gospel justice. Like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer who who sees the injustices of the Nazi regime against the the Jewish people in Germany, against the the church in Germany, and has opportunity to, to leave that place and go off to London and go off to the United States to to study and have more freedom to to lead the church, but becomes very convicted that if the Lord is calling him to be a craftsman, he's got to go back home. And he's got to step into the muck and the injustices of it all and, 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 and humbly sacrifice himself as Jesus did to the point that it costs him his life. And yet, what is the legacy of the ministry of a guy like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? His legacy is one of pointing us to Jesus, is it not? The ministry of so many in the civil rights movement here in the United States, and certainly Martin Luther King Jr. at the the forefront of that, who, who stepped in and proclaimed not just a, a, a a gospel of justification, but, but one that would cause people to go to a, a sit at a counter and, and try to open a door that people would be treated equally, to sit on a bus and not to give up your seat, to give up your humanity, right? I mean, to, to do the work, to step in, not just to protest, not just to, uh, to declare but to do. Which is exactly what God has done for us. He has declared it in passages like Zechariah, and then he did it in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what's the application for us? I I don't fully know, other than to say that the justice of God realized in Jesus Christ is to be lived out in his body. And we have to ask this question of ourselves. What can we do? What will we do? And you'll all have to answer that for yourselves. And as a church, maybe we have to answer that question somewhat collectively. But we live in a world that's crying out for justice. We live in a world that's begging for answers. And as the people of God, we have the answer. Do we have the the will to live according to what we believe and declare? Lord, I ask that you help us to, to see the simplicity of a text like this and how it points us to your Son. We're so thankful that Jesus has come. We're so thankful, Lord, for the example that that you set in him, Lord. It was not what we would have expected, but it was by your wisdom what ultimately was effective. Jesus has conquered sin and death. Jesus does bring message, a message of hope, a message of justice for the oppressed, ultimate liberation, Lord. We're so grateful for our share in that promise. 
But I do pray, Lord, that as we reckon with the fact that the world needs to hear that message resounding, Lord, in so many different ways, in so many different places, so many different specific needs that exist out there, Lord, would you, would you use us as the body of Christ to live in light of that example, to, to be craftsmen, to be sacrificial, to be humble, to be willing to, to through meekness, display the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, ultimately for Jesus to come back. We long for a day when there's no more cries for justice because justice will be, will be executed fully. Come, Lord Jesus. Make all things new. As we live in that hope, Lord, again, help us to live faithfully as ambassadors of that hope. We pray that in Jesus' name.